0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Thank you. Please turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, that's page number 836 in the Bibles in front of you. Today's sermon is kind of a, a prequel. I guess you could say, to last week's sermon. I know that's a little bit unusual for us to go in that order, but in this particular passage with what Mark is writing for us here, I really felt that that was the best way. And so, whereas last Sunday we just looked at two words there in the very end of Mark chapter 1, the words repent and believe. Today we're going to come back to the beginning of those two verses and try to really understand more about why those words are so important. So if you're there, look at verse 14. We're going to read verses 14-14 to 20, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. Mark writes this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we are constantly reminded of how far short we fall of your goodness to us. Of the grace that you've shown to us. And yet, it is that gap, that distance, that drives us back to our knees constantly, repenting and believing. Because you have been so good and you have shown so much grace, and we are so thankful. And Lord, our lives so often fall very, very short of what it is that you have called us to as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ. And yet, we want to be what you have called us to be. We we want to live in the way that you have called us to live. And so here we are now in these two verses, and we are seeing very clearly what it is you have called us to. We spent all of our our time together last Sunday understanding what it means to repent and believe. And now, Lord, we need to know why. We We need to understand why that we should live this way, why you've called us to these things. And so, God, this morning, will you open our eyes to this? Will you work in our hearts and convict us of all the many ways in which we fall short and in which we are not repenting and not believing? And Lord, through this, help us to see the, the form of Christianity that Jesus actually called us to. Help us to, to, to strain out all these other things that we have associated with Christianity because of our culture and our upbringing and, and our own personal choices and preferences, and just see what it is that he is calling us to here. And then, Lord, with, by your grace, will you help us to live it? And that's what we need today. I can't do that. I, I have no words to, to do that in people's hearts, and so this has to be done by your Spirit. And so I come pleading, as we so often do, that your Spirit will be active in our hearts today and you will use your word to change us, to make us more like Jesus Christ. And so we give you this time together. We ask your blessing in it. Give us understanding, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My dad uh, had a saying that I have shared with you before in times past, but I think it's been a while since I've shared this particular one. So with all the new people that we've had over the last months, and I thought it would be safe to, to repeat myself again, but This particular saying was one of a handful that he had uh, that were very, very impactful on me. It went something like this, that it's not enough to know that something happens. You need to know why. Or he might say it in different ways, depending on the circumstances, it's not enough to know that something is, or that something is whatever. You need to know why. You see, my dad was not a very educated man by any human standard. He, he dropped out of high school, I think, at 16 or 17, so he could join the Marine Corps. And uh, he was in the Marines for a number of years before he even got his GED. And when he got out, he had the opportunity to take advantage of his GI Bill, but he chose not to. He really wasn't interested in classroom education. But while my dad may not have been a very educated man, he was a very intelligent man. Um, He had traveled the world very early in life in the Marine Corps. He had been places I'll never go ever. He had seen things I'll never see. He had spent a couple of years fighting in Vietnam, and I'm convinced between watching so many of you who have fought uh, over the years as well as growing up with my dad, that war must be an excellent schoolhouse to teach you all kinds of things about life. And he learned a lot from that experience there. And on top of all those things, he was a voracious reader. From my earliest memories of him, I I can't hardly remember times when he didn't have a book in his hand. Now, they weren't always very deep books. He loved westerns, he loved uh, fiction, but he would read history and he'd read biographies and he just was always reading. And so while he wasn't a very educated man in in terms of the world standards, he was a very, very intelligent man. And part of the way that that showed itself was in his intense curiosity about everything, thus that little saying. That it's not just enough to know that something happens, you need to know why. And if I uh, if I could count how many times I heard that growing up, I bet it would be well over a thousand. <laughs> he was saying it to me all the time as I would just want to do something or or had to learn about something and be like, well, why? Why do you want to do that? What what what's going on with that thing? Why why does it work that way? And I'd be like, Dad, it doesn't matter. It just does. And. He never stopped asking that question, and at some point, parents take note of this for all of our sakes with our children, you know, at some point down the road, at some point after saying it, I think it was around like the eighth or 900th time to me, it finally like clicked that that was actually a very helpful statement and eventually became something that was very, very important to me in life, and I hope I have uh, mimicked his curiosity along the way, trying to always understand why things are like they are. I appreciate that statement now, though I didn't then, and it's at really the heart of what I want to talk to you about today. Last Sunday, we looked at these two commands here at the end of verses 14 and 15, the commands to repent and believe. Whoops, there we are. Repent and believe. And all we did last week was try to, to define those words as best as we can biblically, because I believe that there are many, many people, many, many Christians who don't necessarily have a wrong understanding of these two words, but they do have an incomplete understanding of these two words. Whatever they know is generally right, it's just, it's just not enough. And so we, we wanted to expand our understanding, broaden our thinking on both of these words so that when Jesus calls us to this, both here and throughout the rest of Mark, we recognize and understand what it is he's actually calling us to. And so we started with the word repentance. And I noted that when a lot of people think about repentance, they tend to think about it as something that just has to do with some specific sin. And so you, you tell people, you preach a sermon on repentance, and the whole time you're preaching, you know they're sitting in their seat and they're thinking of that one sin, those two sins or those three sins that they really struggle with and that they really dislike and they really want to change, but that's all they're thinking about is just these one or two or maybe three things, and they don't think about pretty much anything else in life. And that's not necessarily wrong, but it's certainly not enough. Not only that, but when they think of repentance, they tend to think about it as a, as a one-time thing something that they did at some point in the past or something they need to do here at some point in the future, and they picture it as just this moment, this event that they either had or need to have, and once they have it or now that they've had it, they can just go on with life and they're good. The repenting is done. And then number three, I said that people tend to think of it as something that is completely separate from their belief, as if somehow they can just turn their life around on their own without really any help from anyone else. Particularly Jesus. And so last Sunday, I attempted to correct some of those thoughts for us. First, I told you that repentance is not just about specific sins. That when you look at this word that Jesus is using here in verse 15, he's talking about a total change of life. Everything, start to finish, in every realm of your life from what you think to how you feel to what you value to what you do to the words you say to the directions and dreams for the future every last bit of it that was going this way when you come to Jesus is supposed to stop and turn and go back to him and understanding repentance in terms of a total change of life I think will revolutionize our Christian lives if we allow it some of us in here need to repent of our work of our jobs. It's not that we need to quit our jobs and find new jobs. We need to start asking the question, why do we, we work so many hours? What, what are we working for? What's our goal? What's our motivation? What's our, our desire? What's driving us? You can keep the same job. But when you're a believer in Jesus, he is asking you to take all of the things that were going this direction in your job and turn them all around for him. Some of us need to repent of our families. It's right to love your family. It's good to love your family. But why? How? What are you doing? How are you living that out? Are you living out that love for your family that is a good thing in a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus? That's that's what he's calling us to when he calls us to this life of repentance, that it will be a total change in every realm of life going into those deep parts of our hearts that we often don't give time to. Second, it's not just a a one-time thing, it's a constant thing, I said. Because when you look at this word that he uses here, if we could translate it accurately in English, it would be this, be repenting. Just constantly be repenting. Don't stop. And the reason why it's a constant thing, I think, is patently clear when you understand repentance as as affecting all of life. Because every day and everything I do, I keep seeing parts of me that are going this way still. And I have to constantly say, no, 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 we've got to turn this around. And so it's a constant thing to be repenting, not just a one-time thing. And then third, it is inseparable from belief and is in fact the proof of it. So James can say to us, you say you believe, that's great. The demons believe and tremble. Your belief in and of itself is not the evidence of salvation. You need to show it in your life. It has to show itself, and repentance is the way. We also talked about belief. I told you that many people confuse belief with the acceptance of certain facts. So as long as they believe that Jesus is God, and that he came to earth as a a man, and he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross for our sins, and he was buried and he rose again from the dead they believe all these facts correctly, ah, I'm saved. And I pointed out to us last week, and I'll remind you of it today, that nobody believes the gospel better than Satan. Nobody. He knows every detail of it far better than anyone in this room. And he isn't saved. And so when we ask the question, what is belief? I know one thing it isn't. It isn't about accepting certain facts as true. Number two, it's not just a one-time thing. It's not just about some point in time where you prayed a prayer and you knelt on your knees and and you believed and now you're you're good and you always think back to that time of belief in the past. Nor is it something that is separate from repentance, something that you can do without changing your life. No, in reality... In reality, it's the opposite of all of those things. So that when we believe, it's not accepting just certain facts. It's about placing all of our trust and abandoning all other hope. Placing all of our trust in Jesus Christ alone. That he is the only one who can save. He is the only hope we have. So that when we stand before God and he says, why should I let you in? We say, with no other Hope, with no other plea, it is Jesus and his death, or I have nothing. That is what genuine belief, saving faith really is, not just an acceptance of fact. Number two, I said it's not just a one-time thing, it's a constant thing. We keep believing We persevere in our faith. We believe from the moment we first believed until the end of our lives. We keep believing. We fight to believe and believe more. And third, it has to be accompanied by repentance or it's no belief at all. Again, back to James. And so Jesus here in these verses is commanding us to repent and believe, to be repenting, to be believing these words, these ideas, these commands are going into the very core of everything that Jesus is going to say and do from this point here, verses 14 and 15, all the way until he dies on the cross. He will be constantly calling us to repentance and belief. In other words, what I ended with last Sunday, he's going to be constantly calling us to discipleship. Okay, that's the word here. It's discipleship, this process of repenting and believing for all of life. But but here's the question, right? Why? It's not just enough for us to know that, that we need to repent and believe. I'm glad you know that you need to do that now based on last week's message or just this introduction. But why do we need to be doing these things? And it's that question, that why question, that is driving us back now to the beginning of these two verses. You see, these two commands just don't appear on their own, like poof, out of nowhere. Repent and believe. Okay, Jesus just shows up. Everybody repent, everybody believe. Don't ask why, just do it and you're you're good. That's not what he says. No, they appear in a specific time, in a specific place, and for three specific reasons that Mark gives us here in these two verses. And so I want us to go back now into these verses and look at these specific things so that we can get a better understanding of why we should be continually repenting and believing. Number one, let's look at the timing of these commands. And it's how he starts here in verses 14 and 15. He says, now after John was arrested. And that's a really brief comment. It's a a little time marker for us in the story. We don't know how much time has passed between uh, the end of verse 13 and beginning of verse 14. But some time has passed. John has been arrested. And notice what uh, Mark doesn't tell us here. He doesn't tell us in this opening statement why John was arrested, right? He doesn't give any details about it. He will when we get to Mark chapter 6. He'll start to explain more about what was going on. But but here, he just makes the comment and moves on. And so at first glance, when we see this, we kind of think it's an unimportant statement. And yet, I would argue that this is a really interesting beginning to Jesus' public ministry because of this word, arrested. Arrested. See, the Greek word behind this word arrested can also be translated as handed over or delivered or betrayed. This is the same word that will be used both by Jesus and of Jesus at the end of, end of Mark. Excuse me. And so this is the word that Jesus is going to use at the Last Supper, Mark 14, verse 18, when he tells the disciples that one of them, one of you, will betray me. It's the same word that Mark will use in chapter 15 verse 1 to tell how the high priest bound him up and delivered him over to Pilate. It's the same word there. And so in this statement then, we see that John is now in every way the forerunner of Jesus the one who would prepare his way. Apparently, calling people to repentance and belief is kind of a dangerous job at this point in history. Maybe it's going to change later on, but I don't think so. John, or excuse me, Jesus knows what he's getting into. John, he sees it in John's life, and he knows that this, where this will lead, and yet he still calls us to repentance and belief anyway. Notice, secondly, the location of these commands. Jesus came into Galilee. And if you don't know what Galilee is, and we'll talk more about this later, but it's one of the provinces of Palestine during the first century. You can kind of see it maybe on the map. It's way up in the north, and underneath that is Samaria, and then you see Judea under that. So there's all these different provinces in and around Israel or Palestine at that time. It's basically what's left of the nation of Israel. Here are these these places. And, well, again, we'll talk more about Galilee in the future, but for now you just need to understand that Galilee is like the backwoods country part of Israel. This isn't a, a really fancy, rich place. This is, this is a low-class area. It's a poor area. There's nothing prestigious here. There's nothing important here. All the rich people and the educated people and the people with power, they all live down south in Judea, but, but Jesus doesn't go there first at the beginning of his ministry. In fact, as you're going to see as we work through Mark, he doesn't go there very much at all. He spends the majority of his time not with the elite, but but with the commoners. And his disciples won't be the cream of the crop by human standards, right? We we see them introduced to us beginning beginning of their introduction in verse 16. They're not going to be the cream of the crop of, of the scholars or the politicians or the money people. They're going to be fishermen and tax collectors. They're uneducated. They have no idea what they're doing. and They're just following this man, Jesus. And so when I see this and where he goes first, I realize that this call to repentance and belief, this, this call to live for and with God is not just a call for the privileged. It's a call for everyone. So these first two points are really quick, really easy. I hope you get them and we can move on because I want to spend the rest of our time here at the reason for these commands to repent and believe. Mark tells us three things that Jesus is doing here at the beginning of his ministry, and I want you to see them quickly and then we'll come back and look at them one by one. Notice number 1, he is proclaiming the gospel. After John is arrested, he comes into Galilee and he begins to proclaim the gospel. Number 2, he's saying that the time is fulfilled. This is an aspect of his preaching. As he's preaching the gospel, he's saying the time is fulfilled, but it it stands out to, to Mark. And so he includes it as a separate comment. He's also saying one other thing, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so you've got these three things that Jesus is doing as he begins his public ministry. Proclaiming the gospel saying the time is fulfilled and saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. And it is because of these three things then that Jesus calls us to repentance and belief. Based on these things then, here's what you should do. Here's how you should respond. You need to repent and believe. And so what we want to do is just take them each in turn and consider how they drive us to continually repent and believe. First, he's proclaiming the gospel. And so when I see Jesus proclaiming the gospel and I see that one of the outworkings of the proclamation of the gospel is repentance and belief, it leads me to understand that the truths of the gospel should drive us to continually repent and believe. Let's just think about the gospel together for a moment here. Think about God's holiness. We say that God is holy and perfectly righteous, do we not? Do we really understand what that means? In Habakkuk, we're told that God's eyes are too pure to see evil. He can't even look upon wrong. That's how holy he is. He's not a God who who sits in heaven and he sees the evil things we do, and he's like, oh, those naughty children. That's not how he approaches it. His eyes are so, so pure he can't even look upon the evil. In Psalm chapter 5, we read this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Just think about these comments. As I said, he's not a God who delights in wickedness. He never snickers at our antics. He doesn't sit there like a grandfather laughing at his mischievous children. There's nothing about our sin that brings any delight to him or that he can stand. Evil cannot dwell with him. The the slightest bit of evil is enough to drive us from his presence for all time. It says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You say, I thought God loved the, the sinner, but he hated the sin. Here it says he hates the evildoer. Because that's how much he hates sin. If sin is in us, he cannot stand us. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. As Americans, we prefer to think of God as a father who might help us rather than as a judge who might damn us. But when you begin to really get a biblical understanding of who God is and his holiness and his righteousness, you realize that he he can take no evil. No sin whatsoever, which is a problem because we're pretty sinful. David Platt, I've been reading his book Radical. He tells a story of a seminary professor who every semester would take his preaching class to a cemetery some, somewhere near the, the school. And he would make his students, this was an actual pro, he would make his students stand in a certain place in the cemetery and they'd have a, a plot of ground out in front of them. And they had to preach a sermon to the, to the cemetery of rise up and live. And of course, you know, they, students would snicker and laugh and would stand there and feel awkward, but would preach to this, to this cemetery. And of course, the point was very simple. That as we proclaim truth to people, we are proclaiming it to people who are spiritually dead because that is who we are. On our own, we are dead. We are each born with an evil, God-hating heart right before the flood. We just saw this in Genesis 8 a few months ago. God says that he knows that the inclination of our hearts is evil from our what? Youth, from our birth. We rebel against God's law that's written in his word. We rebel against God's law that's written in our heart. We spurn his authority over us, which is really, really sad when you consider that later on in Mark, Jesus is going to stand in a boat and he's going to say, hey, winds, stop, seas, stop, and they immediately stop. All of his creation obeys him perfectly except for us who raise our fists in his face and say no continually. We spurn his authority over us. We are slaves to sin. And as slaves, we are blind to God's truth. Ephesians 4.18 tells us that we are darkened in our understanding and our hearts are like stones. We are totally spiritually dead and left to ourselves. It's not just that we're too wicked to come to God. It's that we don't even want to. Thus, Paul can say in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God on their own. No one seeks after him, and thus man on his own is hopeless. Hopeless. Unable to come to such a holy, righteous God and unwilling to even try. And it is that distinction that separates the the popular American gospel from the biblical gospel. Platt in his book, he says this, he says the modern day gospel says, quote, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Therefore, follow these steps and you can be saved. Meanwhile, the biblical gospel says this, quote, you are an enemy of God, dead in your sins and in your present state of rebellion, you're not even able to see that you need life, much less to cause yourself to come to life. Therefore, you are radically dependent on God to do something in your life that you could never do. The former, he says, sells books and draws crowds. The latter saves souls. In the gospel, then, God is revealing to us our deep need of him. He shows us that there's nothing Nothing that we can do to ever be pleasing to him, to ever come to him. We can't manufacture salvation. We can't program it. We can't produce it. We can't even initiate it. God has to open our eyes, set us free so that we can, so that he can overcome our evil and appease his own wrath. That is salvation, that God has to come to us. And that is why we call it grace because he was willing to come to us, that he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, where we're at right now in Mark. This is his grace. He came to us. He didn't have to send his son in his righteousness, in his holiness. And because of our great sinfulness, he could have just damned us all to hell for all eternity, and he would have been right to do so. And yet he sends us his son who can come and will live a perfect life to take our sins on himself and endure all of God's wrath for us. He came to us in Jesus Christ and he comes to us now. No one seeks after God, right? You say, well, I I thought I sought after God. You want to know a little secret? The reason you sought after God was because he sought after you first. Because he came to you and he began to remove those, those blinders so you could see. And he made it, you able to respond to him. For every one of us in here who are believers in Jesus Christ, the only reason we are believers in Jesus Christ is because he came to us. Certainly then, certainly, the truths of the gospel should motivate us to live lives of continual repentance and belief, if for no other reason, out of sheer gratitude. Sheer gratitude for what God has done for us in Jesus. Paul, in Titus chapter 2, makes a statement. I've loved this statement for, for years. It, it's, it's the exact same thing. He says it like this, Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared. Pause. What's that a reference to? What, what grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. Well, it's uh, Jesus, okay. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us, teaching us, instructing us then to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to, in place of that, repentance, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So you want to know why you should repent and believe? Here's why. Because of all that God has done for you in the gospel. You should repent and believe. It's the only right response. Second, second, he comes saying that the time is fulfilled. This is one of the reasons because the time is fulfilled, you should repent and believe. And so here's what I would say. The reality of our place in God's timetable should drive us to continually repent and believe the reality of our place in God's timetable should drive us to continually repent and believe. We saw this a little bit in the prologue, right? The presence of John the Baptist means that God is now fulfilling the promises that he had made to Israel years before. In in Malachi chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 40, God had promised to send someone who would come and prepare the way of the Messiah, someone who would come and prepare the way for this day of the Lord. And John is that forerunner. He came preparing the way for Jesus. And now, now, here's Jesus on the scene preaching the gospel and fulfilling the promises that God has made to Israel and to all humanity. The time is fulfilled. And if you think back with me through that, you you remember uh, you had to be here, and if you're not, I'm not going to be able to give you a full explanation of this, but that pattern I showed you at the very, very beginning of this Mark series of of what you see throughout the the larger story of Scripture. I didn't just share that with you because I thought it was neat. I shared it with you because it's very, very important for rightly understanding what Jesus is doing throughout this gospel. You see this pattern of chaos, creation, and blessing. And after each little uh, a pattern here after each cycle, you see that man fails. And so, for example, in, in the opening book of our Bible, in, in Genesis chapter 1, the story opens in chaos. It is lifeless. It is dead. There's, there's nothing there. And so into the chaos, God speaks. He comes to the chaos. He comes to it and he speaks into it. And there he creates life. And he, he chooses a man to work with. He chooses Adam. And to this man, he gives the blessing of, of a covenant. And what does Adam do? Does he live the rest of his days in thankfulness and gratitude to God for that covenant? No, he fails. He fails to believe that God really is who and what he says he is. And the world is plunged into chaos again. You see the chaos of a flood. And God comes and he, he recreates through Noah He takes Noah and he blesses him, gives him a covenant. And again, does Noah then live the rest of his life in obedience and gratitude to God? You see him fail right off the bat. He fails to believe. Number three, you see the chaos of Babel. Out of the failure of the flood, you see the the, the chaos of Babel. God comes in and he chooses a people out of this, Abraham. And to this man, Abraham, he blesses him, makes covenants with him. Abraham and his people fail. You see the chaos of Egypt. As God now comes and he recreates by calling out his nation through the man Moses, and he blesses them with a covenant. And does Israel obey? No. They fail to believe. He sends them into the chaos of the judges and he comes and he recreates by establishing a king, David, and he he blesses him, makes a covenant with him. Does David and his descendants believe? Do they do everything right? No. They fail to believe. And so you see the chaos of exile as the nation of Israel is divided and sent away. And it's At that moment, that God recreates once again, and he sends his son, Mark chapter 1, to whom he gives a blessing, the new covenant, to us who name ourselves by his name. And so now here is God offering this new covenant to humanity. Has humanity responded well? Not generally. A failure to believe. And so when we look ahead, what do we see? one more chaos a tribulation out of which god will make a new world and he himself will become the pinnacle of this and the blessing that he will give in that time is the blessing of eternal life with no more failure ever again do you do you know what that shows us it shows us that we're in the last days the very thing that the apostles were preaching, the very thing that Jesus was preaching, that we are near the end. That, that, and as you think about where we are in God's timetable, in God's plan, the only right response to that is that we continually repent and believe. And then third, he's saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. And I would say to that then that the presence of his kingdom should drive us to continually repent and believe. What, what is the kingdom of God? Israel was expecting this. They're not. When Jesus comes and he starts preaching this, they're like, yeah, that's great. Kingdom of God's at hand, I'm all excited. The reason they were so excited is because they were expecting a king to come who would defeat their enemies, sit on a throne, rule over God's people Israel in Jerusalem to make Israel's name great throughout the earth. They were a little right, but mostly wrong. Because God had other ideas of what his kingdom would look like. You see, he did send a king. It was his son. And this son, as both God and man, is kingly in every way. He is a son of Abraham and a son of David. But he is also a son of the king of creation. And so he sends a king to this earth. He came to defeat our enemies. They just didn't happen to be Roman. They didn't happen to be political or or military. They were spiritual in nature. He defeats Satan, sin, and death itself. He did come to sit on a throne. It just wasn't made of human gold sitting in a building somewhere. After his death and burial and resurrection, he ascends to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. He did come to rule over his people, just not the people of Israel by themselves. It was going to be all of his people, from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation who had been assembled together under the blood of Jesus Christ. He did come to make a name great, but it wasn't Israel's name. It was his name. It was the name of God, the only name worthy of universal praise. And today, guess what? If you name yourself under him, if you call yourself a believer in Jesus, you are a citizen of this kingdom. It's hidden now to our eyes. It's not physical in nature. It is spiritual in nature, but it is coming in fullness. How then should we live as citizens of this kingdom? Well, we should live our lives continually repenting and believing as servants of the king. And so when we ask the question of why Why should we repent? Why should we believe? Why should we be disciples of this man, Jesus? Well, we learn a number of things. We learn, number one, that the call to discipleship is costly. It costs both John and Jesus their very lives, and it will cost us. Jesus calls us to lay down our lives to follow him. Pick up your cross, sit in your electric chair, grab your noose, whatever you want, analogy you need to think of to really understand what he's asking you to do. He says people who who save their lives lose it. People who lose their lives gain it. He's calling us to discipleship, and discipleship is going to be costly. Two, the call to discipleship is for everyone, not just the elite. And so this is not just for the the super Christians in our midst. Well, I'm just not that guy, you know. I'm not as spiritual as him. I don't understand things. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. It doesn't matter. Jesus didn't come for the elite. Don't you get it? He chooses weak people. He insults us. He chooses weak, foolish people so that he can get the glory. That's who we are. We are here to be his disciples, not just if you're elite, every one of us. The call to discipleship is the proper response to God's grace. In fact, it's the only response. When you realize God's holiness and his righteousness and your sinfulness and what he had to do to make you his own, What other response could you give except to repent and believe and to live for Him? He didn't save us so that we could just live our our own lives out just however we wanted. He saved us so we could live for Him. The call to discipleship is the right response to the times in which we live because whether it's by death or by His imminent coming, one way or the other, our time here is short. It's going to go by so fast. What are we going to look back on, on our deathbeds and think, I wish I had done this. I wish I, I'm so glad I gave my life to, to sports because that was so important now. Will we think that? The call to discipleship is the proper response to God's rule and reign because we are citizens and we have been called to live as servants of the king. This is what Jesus is calling to. This is Christianity as Jesus defines it. It's not a philosophy. It's not a team you root for. It is a dying to self in every way so that you can live in every way for the one who died for you. Now, if I could give you a homework assignment, this is the one I would give And it's a really weird one, but stick with me for a moment. I would ask you to as soon as you get in your car or as soon as you get home, depending on what kind of phone you have, all right, to buy a song, one song. Some of you know the song. Others of you may not be familiar with it. It's a song by a guy named Todd Agnew called My Jesus. You know that song, anybody? Anybody? I love that song. It's so convicting to me. And even though reading lyrics doesn't do the same as as hearing a song, again, it's called My Jesus by Todd Agnew. Go buy it, okay? It's 99 cents. You can live without it. Um, I want to read you the lyrics, and I want you to listen to these as carefully as you can, and then go hear him sing it. It's much, much better. But here's what he says in most of the song. I'm not going to do the whole thing. He says, which Jesus do you follow? Which Jesus do you serve? If Ephesians says to imitate Christ, then why do you look so much like the world? You want to play it now? Because I know my reading's not that good, but we can go with it. That's commitment right there, folks. That's commitment. He loves Jesus. Now I've lost it. Lost you. The chorus says, Because my Jesus bled and died, he spent his time with thieves and liars. He loved the poor and accosted the arrogant. So which one do you want to be? Blessed are the poor in spirit, or do we pray to be blessed with the wealth of this land? Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, or do we ache for another taste of this world of sinking sand? Because my Jesus bled and died for my sins. He spent his time with thieves and sluts and liars. He loved the poor and accosted the rich. So which one do you want to be? Who is this that you follow, this picture of the American dream? If Jesus was here, would you walk right by on the other side or fall down and worship at his holy feet? Pretty blue eyes and curly brown hair and a clear complexion is how we see him as he dies for our sins. But the word says he was battered and scarred, or did you miss that part? Sometimes I doubt we'd recognize him. Because my Jesus bled and died. He spent his time with thieves and the least of these. He loved the poor and accosted the comfortable. So which one do you want to be? Because my Jesus would never, these words pierce me. My Jesus would never be accepted in my church. The blood and dirt on his feet might stain the carpet. But he reaches for the hurting and despises the proud. And I think he prefer Beale Street, which is a street in Memphis, to the stained glass crowd. And I know that he can hear me if I cry out loud. I want to be like my Jesus. If you want to be like Jesus, if you you want to walk with him down this journey of discipleship, then the road he calls you to, no, the road he commands you to walk is the road of repentance and belief. Will you walk that road with him today?